episode number 31. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast. Lessons from Authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Higher Life Podcast. The Torah portion of the week is Lech Lecha. Is your body affecting your thinking? Anatomy and spirituality. We can have a powerful parable from the Magid Medumna about sitting at the head of the table, a great story about Rav Ruven Grobzovsky, and peace in your home when 80% equals zero. So at the end of the Parsha, we have a verse that says like this. When Avram was 99 years old, Hashem appeared to Avram and said to him, I am Kel Shachai. This is the first time we're using this name, and I'm going to explain what that name means in a minute. Walk before me and be perfect. Rashi explains to be perfect, he's talking about bris mila. Hashem is commanding him to do bris mila. I will set my covenant between me and you. The bris mila is going to make it a covenant, but that's what the word bris means. It means covenant between Avraham and Hashem. And I will increase you most exceedingly. Avraham fell on his face, and God spoke to him, saying, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be a father of multitudes of nations. Your name shall no longer be called Avram, but your name shall be called Avraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So this is the bris between the Jewish people and God. So the name Shachai, which really means shit die, that it's enough. It means the God of enough. The base the Levi brings the Bereshish Rabbah that says like this. The Holy One, blessed be He, said to Avram, Non-circumcision has predominated long enough, and Mila has been for long, long enough. I am the one who said enough to my world. The Gemara in Shabbos 30b says, Hashem said enough. Why? Because if He didn't say enough, what would have happened? The wheat plant would have gotten sprout out pastries. In other words, nature itself would have produced until the end. So God had to put a, a boundary on it. His wisdom decreed that the final stage be left for man. And so it will be until the end of days, when the world reaches perfection. And an Eretz will produce pastries and woolen garments. In other words, things will go until the end. And the Midrash Tanchumas is like this. Tanis Rufus asked Rabbi Akiva, If God really wanted man to do bris mila, to cut the orla off, so why wasn't man born that way? So the Midrash says that Avram Avinu could have possibly asked him the same question. But since Hashem referred to himself as Kel Shachai, the God of enough, he understood. The Midrash says, enough, I left all of creation for man to complete. Thus he completed himself through Mila. In other words, God gave space for man. And this bris Mila is the completion of man as a human spiritual entity. And the Rashi explains that when Avraham did the bris, so that's when God added the hey to his name. We're going to call him now Avraham. And Rashi says there, and now the word Avraham, the total of your letters is a numerical value of 248, which means all the parts of the body. At this point, he is shalem. It means that the spirituality inside of his neshama and his soul can penetrate every aver, every part of his body, and he can become a spiritual being at that point. So it's the bris mila that's the completion of the human body to be able to hold the soul in the proper way, which means the proper connection to God. And without the bris, the body is actually blocking our relationship with God. Because the body, which is physical, blocks the spiritual. 
but with the bris, we're able to overcome our physical natures. So the Torah on the Chumash. Now the Torah on the Chumash explains like this. We know that Avram Avinu kept all of the mitzvahs. So the famous kasha is, if it's true that he kept all of the mitzvahs, why did he wait until he was 99 years old to do the mitzvah of Mila? Avram was able to derive all of the mitzvahs through his intellect. So this is a very important mitzvah. So why didn't he do this mitzvah also? So one answer, one sheet that he brings down, it was only after the Mila that Avram was able to conceive of all the mitzvahs. In other words, the Mila was blocking his intellect. But once he did the Mila, he was able to conceive of all the 613 mitzvahs, but only after the Mila. So the question arises as to what was so special about Mila that it opened up the mind in this way. Another question is that the Shem Shmuel asks, why is it that Avram delayed in doing this mitzvah and he had to go ask his friends whether he should do it or not? The Midrash Tanchumis is like this. Avram had three close friends. Anur, Eshko, and Mamre. Anur said, you better not do it because you remain yourself. Maybe the relatives of the kings that you just had a war with are going to come kill you. Eshko said, don't do it. You're too old. You're going to die. And Mamre said, go ahead and do it. So why when it came to this mitzvah did Avram ask his friends? He did all the other commandments. And not only that, but we know that this was one of the tests of Avram Avinu. Therefore, this test had to be greater than the test before. And the test before is he threw himself into a fiery furnace. He gave up his entire body. And he laid down, and he laid down his life to fight the four kings. So what's the problem with this mitzvah? So the answer that the Shemesh Shmuel wants to give is that the bris mila has the ability to transform an individual into a totally different spiritual level. And he explains that since Avram's whole goal in life was to bring people close to God, he was afraid he was going to be on too high a level. He was going to be too different than everybody else. He was going to have no way to relate to people. He was on such a spiritual level. He'd be like an angel. And since he would lose touch with the common man, he would figure he has no way to macarve them, to bring them close to God. Because once he did the bris mila, all the gates of spirituality became open to him. And the Midrash Rabbah says like this, Avram said, While I was still uncircumcised, travelers come to see me. But now that I am circumcised, are you saying they won't come to see me anymore? He would be on too high a level. So that's why he asked his friends. Once he saw that Mamri said it was okay to go and do it, he sees that people can still relate to it. He said, okay, I can still affect the common person. They're still going to come along to Yiddishkeit. They're still going to convert, even if they have to do Mila. And even if I'm already on this high level, I'll still be able to bring them close. So the Mabim explains that the hay in Avram's name added the ability to reach Hamon, the multitude of people. The bris gave him the ability to have greater influence on more people. That's what the Pesukim say. And before Avram had the bris meal, we see in the Pesukim that he fell on his face. When God came close to him, he wasn't able to stand. That was before the bris meal. And at the very end of the Parsha, Hashem used the name Elohim. Why, the Malbim explains, because the Elohim is the only name that could be used as a, as a possessive. Where we know, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, the God of Avram. This meant that Avram was able to have a much deeper, greater relationship, closer 
who is able to stand and be close to God. The Pusik said God spoke with him rather than to him. God was with him after the bris. This was the unique covenant. The word bris means, again, covenant. This was the covenant between man and God. And he goes on to explain that removing the orla, removing the skin from the aver, affects the thought, the emotions, and the actions of a person. It makes him more spiritual and less likely to be swayed with material desires. Because we know that the bris itself is on the place of the material desires. It says, you shall circumcise all males. The entire male being is now going to have a different mahus, a different essence. And this set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. Now, what I want to bring out here is we see that the body itself is an ikuv, a deterrent to spirituality. If the body's not in the proper way, you can't have spirituality. And this applies to other aspects of Judaism. For example, kashris. We know that if you eat treif, it's matamtem the leif. The leif becomes impure. And then the thinking becomes impure. Another example is in the Tilaseadaim. In the morning, you're supposed to wash your hands three times to take off the tomb of the impurities that came upon you when you were sleeping. Because when you sleep, your shaman leaves your body and it's like you were dead. You have the tomb of like a, a dead person. You have to remove that from your hands in the morning. It says in Chazal, if, it, if a person doesn't wash his hands in, his mo- in the morning, he's going to be scared. He could become a Meshigna. There's all these different things that we do physically that affect our spirituality. It affects our manuchas nefesh, our peace of mind. It affects the way we think. Religious Jews go to the mikvah. When they go in the mikvah, they take the impurities off of their body. Why the body? Why can't it be spiritual? What does that have to do with my body? No, the, the body is the thing that's stopping you from having feelings and thoughts of spirituality. You could only go so far. Was often was only able to go so far as long as he had the mila. But it also applies in day-to-day life. Kashris, Natilis Yadayim, going to the mikvah. The Ramchal says like this, the two are in a constant state of battle. If the soul prevails, it not only elevates itself, but it elevates the body as well. In other words, if you're able to clean yourself up and, and uh, express your soul, your neshama, through mitzvahs, you're going to actually start to purify your body. And it's self-perpetuating. The more pure your body becomes, the more holy your body becomes, the more holy your thoughts will be, which can help you again to help lift yourself to new levels. On the other hand, he says, if he allows the physical to prevail, then besides lowering his body, he also debases his soul. He continues later and says, as the soul continues to participate in good deeds, it should likewise be able to spread out and radiate, thus purifying the body. The mitzvahs purify your physical body. We know stories, we know that tzaddikim, righteous people, they don't rot in the grave. There's a famous story of the chida, which is very recent. They dug him up and brought his body to so now his body was too intact. How can it be? The answer is the body has the ability to either bring the soul down or the soul has the ability to bring the body up and make the body into a spiritual entity. And in theory, it's a miracle cloud that we can understand one word of Torah, a word of God. How can a word of God penetrate into a physical body? We're physical. How can we have any gl- glimpse of spirituality? Well, through God's chesed, he made it that we could have spirituality. Now, if we take that spirituality and we extend it, we're going to affect our bodies. And we affect our bodies, we affect our minds. This is a very, very important principle. 
People say, why don't I feel spiritual? Maybe, maybe you didn't do a lot of Tzitzitayim. Or why don't I feel holy? Maybe you're eating treif. And this is what outsiders of Torah don't understand. What's the problem? You just read the books and you understand what it says. It's not true. If a person is Tame, a person is physically impure, he will not understand what's being written in the Torah. Not only that, it also applies the Torah learning itself is purifying the body. By sitting for hours and, and not sleeping, pushing sleep away from your eyes, and sitting and learning, it's physically exhausting. But that learning of the Torah, which is spiritual, is going to affect your body. The, the, the effort that you put in into the learning is making your body more pure, which makes your mind more pure. This is why the conservatives don't understand. They start changing the rules. <laughs> what do you mean? Did they put thousands of hours into learning? Or no, they've already let go of so many things for the sake of comfort. And they're eating who knows what. Their wives are not going to the mikvah. So what do you expect? Of course, their minds are going to lead them in all kinds of weird ways. It's the antithesis of Torah. Torah is not just intellectual knowledge. Torah is knowledge of spirituality. And now there's a whole fight going on. The conservatives want to change in Eretz Israel the rules of conversion. Who are these people? What are they? They know anything about Torah? Are they pure holy people? How can they say what the Torah says? Besides the fact that they don't give any honor to the great Torah scholars and spend hours and hours in thinking you know, who's right and who's wrong, which way, what's, what do we need? What does it say? What is the Messiah? What is the tradition? Besides that, their bodies are impure because they're not really following the Torah. They're not keeping Shabbos. They're full of averas, full of sins. If you sin, of course your mind isn't going to be able to think in the right way, in the, in the, in the correct way, in the way of truth. To make a true accounting of what needs to be done, what's right and what's wrong. Judaism is not a social club. Oh, bring them in anyway. Bring this one in, that one. Come on, would you bring somebody into the major leagues who couldn't even play baseball? Yeah, bring him in. We like him. He's our friend. It's serious here. The bottom line is, though, we learn from this week's Parsha, the effect of the mitzvahs and learning Torah and brismila and kashris, netilis yidayim. Expending effort in learning and doing mitzvahs, all these things have an effect on our physical body, and therefore they affect the way we think. This means if we want to uplift ourselves, we have to be medactic, exacting in the mitzvahs. Because without being exacting in the mitzvahs, our body is blocking true spirituality. Here is a powerful The Magid Madubna has a parable on this week's Parsha. Lech lecha, for you shall go forth from your land. And the end of the Pasuk, it says, El to the land that I will show you. So he says, one time there was a very wealthy man who used to invite a lot of guests to his table. And each guest, depending on his level, he would sit him closer to the head of the table. So the people who were more important sat closer to him, and they actually got better food. So the people who were richer, they got a nice piece of meat. People further down the table got some stew. And the poor people got vegetables. This is what they were used to. So one time a man came in. He, would, he looked like he was dressed like a very important person. So the owner of the house put him at the front of the table. So as he fed him the meat, he saw he wasn't really interested in that. And when the vegetables passed by, he grabbed for the vegetables. So he realized this not, must not be a rich man. 
So he says to the guests, please get up. You should, I think you should sit at the end of the table. So somebody said, why are you embarrassing him? God forbid, I'm not trying to embarrass him. I'm just trying to sit him where he feels comfortable. That was the mashal. The nimshal is the Jewish people. We know that Avram Avinu was commanded to go to Eretz Yisrael. So Bnei Yisrael, the Jewish people, were supposed to be in Eretz Yisrael, close to the base of Migdash, close to the holiness of Yushalayim. He says, but when the Jewish people start acting like the rest of the world and they start grabbing for the vegetables, they want a little bit of a tithe of a lomazah. So Hashem says, fine, you want to be like that, go to the back of the table. But hopefully all the Jews are going to do tshuva and they're going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth and brought back to Yushalayim, the proper place at the head of the table. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. So Rav Ruven Gorvatsky, the Rosh Shiva, who used to live in Minsk, there was a certain point in Minsk where things were very, very bad. Socialism and secular Zion was spreading among the Jews. Torah was considered old-fashioned, these Shiva students were made fun of. Rare was the house that a family was not affected. But Rav Ruven Gorvatsky, he was one of the fortunate ones. He studied with another 30 young men in some Beit Knesset. And Rev Ruven used to keep an eye on two younger members of the study group. Now, these two younger students were in danger because their relatives were pressing them to leave the yeshiva and go to university because that's what was in the air at that time. So one of them was named Aaron and the other was Yaakov. So Aaron's father, who is respected Dayan, had passed away and there was great pressure in his house to enroll him into university because he was such a brilliant mind they figured if he learned something, mathematics, he would become a very, very rich. He'd be able to support the family. So Rav Ruven saw that these two students were under a lot of pressure. So he says, you know what he says? I'm going to take these boys out of Minsk. He sent them to Yeshiva's Knesset Yisrael in Slabatka. Aaron was only 15 years old at the time. But he used to go to the Shiva of the Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Mordechai Epstein. And he used to stand on a bench because he wasn't able to see. And he would stand on the bench and he, was, he would scream out difficulties against the Rosh Yeshiva. He was obviously a genius. So his relatives used to say, no, come, we need help. Your mother needs help. Come, you have to go to university, and Rav Ruven would intercept the letters. They would argue, I'm saying, why are you wasting your talents on those dusty volumes of Talmud? Come to the universities and study the wisdom of the greatest minds on earth. You will surely be successful and become famous one day. But if you continue your silly studies with these old men, who will know your name 40 years from now? Who ever heard of Rav Aaron Cutler? In other words, one of them was Rev. Aaron Cutler, the greatest Rosh Hashiva that America has ever seen. And the other was, was Rev. Ya- Yaakov Kamenetsky, another one of the Gedolia Adore in America. It says that these two great, great toilet scars for the rest of their lives always thanked Rev. Ruvain for saving them and keeping them in the right path. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. Rav Nach ben Dynamite continues in Shalom Bayes. He says like this. He has a chapter like this. When 80% equals zero. He says one time he was in a car and he was traveling from Beersheba, which is far away from Bnei Brak. He was going to Bnei Brak. They picked up a hitchhiker. So the boy was so excited. Why are you going all the way to Bnei Brak? They get closer to Bnei Brak. The driver asked the boy, where exactly do you need to go? And he quotes a Rashi in Mikits. It says, cursed are the wicked because their deeds are incomplete. You might as well finish the mitzvah. Can you please take me all the way to my house? So Rav Dynamite was in the car. He thought the guy was joking or something. He sees the kid is serious. So the driver said, listen, I'm sorry. It's not possible. He says, what do you mean? If you drop me off here, 
I have to walk a kilometer and a half by foot. Jarvis said, there's nothing I can do. He opened the door, let him out. He says the boy stumped away, slamming the door behind him, not even saying a word of thanks. He drove him all the way from Beersheba to Bnei Brak and even thank him. Why? Because he was missing a kilometer. In other words, he was saying, listen, I want 100%. I don't want anything. He said, this can also happen in Shalom Bayez. Let's say, for example, the husband asked the wife, please call my mother today and give her a message and deposit this check in the bank. So he gets home. He says, did you call my mother? He says, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. Did you make it to the bank? Yeah, I got there, but the bank was closed. So the husband says, what did you do today? This is the worst thing that a husband could say. What do you mean, what did she do today? She got up at 6 o'clock in the morning. She went to get grocery shopping. She cooked. She woke up the kid. She sent him to school. She made sandwiches and snacks. She made breakfast for him and for her. She went to work, came home, took care of the kids again, feeded them again, washed the dishes, washed the floor, put two loads of laundry in, folding, ironing, bathing the children, putting them asleep, and all this is zero? What do you mean, what did I do today? Since at that point, no apology is going to help. He says, if a person thinks that 80% is zero or 90% is zero, he should not even think of getting married. Now, there's another aspect, not only a question of appreciating what's being done, but not expecting more from your spouse than what you do yourself. For example, a man says, I want two things for my wife. He goes to the counseling together and he's saying in front of the wife, I just want two things. When I come home, the house looks a little bit normal, organized, and at two o'clock, my meal is ready. The wife starts to cry. She says, listen, I have to clean up the house. When I get into the car, which is your car, the car is a total wreck. I have to clean off the seat. Every time I go to sit down, the car is a wreck. And she says, well, when you walk it in 2.30, that's okay, right? I have to be exacting with my time and have the food ready. But if you come in 2.30, you say, listen, I was talking to my friend. Well, you're not medactic on the time either. And what do you mean that you needed to take, the reason that he gave is that he had to take a rest afterwards. Yeah, but when you decide to come at 2.30, all of a sudden you don't need a rest. So you can't play a double standard. The husband or the wife should never demand from the other what they don't demand from themselves. It brings up Yusra Salantar who says, a person has to worry about his own alumabai, his own next world. And he should worry about this world when it comes to the other individual. He should help him in this world. But he says the tragedy would be the opposite. No, when it comes to his physical world, he's worried about himself. And when it comes to spirituality, what the person's doing right or wrong, all of a sudden he's worried about the other guy. That's not the way to do it. That means you're demanding more from the other person than you demand from yourself. A man and a woman can walk around for years with the feeling that what is permitted for me is forbidden for you. That's not fair. You can't demand from your spouse more than you demand from yourself. And you can't demand from your children more than you demand from yourself. And you can't demand from your students more than you demand from yourself. So two points here. Appreciate what is being done. Even if it's not perfect, it's 80%. You have to appreciate the 80% that the other person is doing for you. And two, do not demand from them more than you demand from yourself. That's it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends and please leave comments. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit RabbiMinterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments.